Well, I'm gathering. I pictured this being a little bit different because every Sunday when I'm here, you guys are all over there. And so I'm thinking about how I'm going to do this and I kept thinking, I'm going to have to go over here, but now I've got to go over here. And plus, a lot of you look kind of funny tonight. So a lot of costumes going on, but glad you're here. I'm Lance Ward, pastor of Congregational Care. And I've been asked to close up this series on Jesus, just Jesus, and talk about the return of Christ in Revelation. And we'll look at in some other places too, but on this night of ghosts, ghouls, and goblins, here we are, of all places, in church. Now, I've been a pastor for 23 years. I've known the Lord for about 36 or 37 years. I've never been inside a church building on Halloween night. But here we are. And, and this is an appropriate setting for our topic, the return of Christ. It's a fitting topic because if you are not ready for the return of Christ... There can be nothing more horrifying than not being ready. And speaking of horror, I wondered myself on this Halloween why so many of us are drawn to horror movies. Why do we like it when the hair stands up on our arms or we're jumping out of our skin when the monsters or the ghouls come out of nowhere? I really don't know, but I'll admit I kind of I like that too. But those aren't the kinds of movies that keep me awake at night. The kinds of movies that keep me awake at night are not the ones with scary people or scary monsters, but the ones with scary ideas. I saw one like that a little over a decade ago. You might have seen it or read the book that was written in the 70s. It's called Tuck Everlasting. And I won't go over the story, but it poses a frightening idea. Suppose you could find a fountain of youth. You drink from it, and the moment you drink from it, you stop aging right then and right there. Now, if you're in middle school, you're in trouble. That's not where you wanna stop aging. But let's say you're in the prime of your life. So if you drink from that fountain, you will forever be in the prime of your life. You'll never get sick again. You'll never die because you can't die. You are immortal. And you know, at first glance, that sounds good, doesn't it? But here's the scary thought that movie presents to us. While you are immortal, everyone else around you still dies, still gets sick. But you can't ever die. You can never escape. You make new friends along the way, but you know that every single one will die and you'll have to make new friends. No one will ever go to your funeral. You're always going to everyone else's funeral. You fall in love and your spouse ages while you stay young. Then one day, that spouse dies and your heart shatters. A few years later, you see someone else you're attracted to. You fall in love with them again, but you're a little bit sketchy every time after that because you know what's going to happen. You will live forever and you will in, be in this constant cycle of being a widow or a widower, a cycle that's cruel and unending. Now, I don't know who wrote that story, but I do know that the person who wrote that story, whether they knew it or not, were touching on a biblical reality, something that happens way back, and as Andy opened a couple of weeks ago, way back in Genesis that will end in Revelation, but it starts way back there 
in Genesis 3, after sin enters the world and paradise descends into madness. At the end of Genesis 3, sin has come into the world and the consequences of sin have happened. And then in the end, it says in verse 23, so the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they have been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, if you've ever read that, you've wondered, why would God do this? And the story of Tuck Everlasting tells us why. Because God does not want Adam and Eve to be stuck forever in a world where sin and sorrow and suffering reign. It is a mercy of God that we actually can die and if we believe in Christ, of course, we can go and be with the Lord. What would be awful, what would be an awful existence would be to live forever in a sin-wrecked world. Three weeks ago, Andy introduced this series by reminding us that the Bibles we hold are not merely instruction manuals. No, our Bibles are a redemption story. And if you're paying any attention in Genesis 3, a question at this point should pop into your mind. And it's this, will things ever go back to the way they were? Could we ever possibly get back to a tree of life that we eat from and we will live forever, but not in a sin-wrecked world, in a better world? Well, in the New Testament, we are led to believe the answer will be yes, after our Savior Jesus Christ comes out of another garden and hangs upon not a tree of life, but a tree of death. And almost all of us, if not all of us here today, could say, that's what I'm trusting in. That's what I'm hoping in. But all the while we're hoping in that, we realize, wait a minute though, people around me are still dying. People are still getting cancer. People are getting their houses broken into. There is unrest in the world. There are wars. There is bloodshed. There is terrorism. In our schools, Bullies walk the halls. In our world, natural disasters reign. There are tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, fires, and floods. Five of those, which appeared all in one year about 13 years ago here in Oklahoma. All those kinds of things. So in short, if you and I belong to Jesus, here's what we realize. We still have a problem. The penalty of sin has been removed from us and yet our world still groans and that is why we turn our attention tonight to what's gonna solve all these problems, the return of Christ. And we will mainly focus in Revelation, but I've gotta tell you, we're gonna go in different places in the New Testament because the return of Christ is not just found in the book of Revelation. It's found not only in the New Testament, it's also found in the Old Testament, but we will talk about several passages tonight. I'm going to throw those up on the screen as we go along, and I'm not gonna get a chance to read every part of every verse, but I'll try to read the most important parts, and I'll tell you here, here's a disclaimer. I had to pick and choose just a few verses. There are many, many more than the ones I will show you tonight. But we're gonna start in Acts chapter one. You might remember in Acts chapter one, Jesus gives his disciples instructions after they ask him a question. They say to Jesus, is it at this time when you will restore your kingdom? In other words, what they're asking is, okay, you've died, you've risen from the dead, we've got that. Now are you going to set the world right? And he says, you know what? It's not for you to know that. 
but go and make disciples of all nations, which is what goes on here every week and, and in groups in, in, your, in, in the gathering. Go and make disciples. And then he ascends, he disappears, he ascends into heaven. And then an angel appears. It says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go up. And I'm sure they ask what we ask, well, when will this be? I think the disciples thought this would happen during their lifetime. In fact, I think every Christian who's ever been alive, every church person who's ever been alive since Christ was ascended thought that this would happen in their generation. Indeed, you've got a lot of people in our lives saying it could happen in our generation, and it could. I hope it doesn't happen on Halloween. I don't want to, be, to ascend in a costume, but that's another story. But we're going to tonight explore the aspects of the, and the angles of this return. When will this be? What will it be like? And maybe, here's where we're gonna go, spoiler alert. At the end, we're going to find our way back to a garden and a river and a tree of life. So first of all, when it comes to the return of Christ, we've got to look at the nature of this return. It will be rapid and irreversible. Oftentimes in the gospels when Jesus speaks of his return, he says, I will come like a thief. How does a thief come? A thief does not call you that afternoon that he's going to break in that night and say, hey, I just wanna let you know, sometime tonight, probably between the hours of 11 and 2 a.m., 11 a.m. and 2 a.m., I'm going to rob your house. They don't do that. We're always shocked when something like that happens to us. In Matthew 24, 36 through 42, he talks about the days of Noah and it says they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Therefore, stay awake. In Revelation 16, 15 and also in three, verse three, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. I want you to imagine you, you're going into a class in college and and you're in the first day and the syllabus is being handed out and there's going to be 24 class sessions. You're meeting three days a week and there's gonna be 24 total sessions. And the professor says to you, I want you to know this, that during the course of this semester, there will be three different class periods where I'm going to give a pop quiz. Now the quiz will be easy. In fact, after I go over it, I will give you the answers and you will turn your quizzes in. But here's the deal, you have to, have taken all three pop quizzes. If you don't, that is three quarters of your grade for this class. So if you just miss one, you're in danger of failing. And they're probably doing that because they want you to come to class. The first pop quiz doesn't pop up until week 12, and by that time you're kind of lulled into something. You've maybe forgotten that's what he said, but it comes in class number 12. And here is probably going to be your response. First shock, but then you won't be surprised. There will be shock, but you won't be surprised because you'll be shocked because finally, what he threatened to do, he's doing. We're having this pop quiz in class number 12. But then you remember, but it was on the syllabus in the first two class periods, he told us about it. So I'm not surprised. I think that's what it will be like when Jesus comes back for those of us who know him. There will be shock. You know, you, you hear about a trumpet sound. Can you imagine? Sometimes I just imagine I'm driving down the street. Like, will that happen when I'm driving? You know, this loud trumpet. And I think, well, I'll go. But then those of us who know Christ will say, 
but I knew this was coming and I'm ready. There's shock, but not surprise. The return of Christ will be similar. There will be shock, but for those who know Christ, there will be no surprise. But if you're not ready, it will be irreversible. There's no going back, there's no second chances. You've heard the, the phrase, God is a God of second chances, that's true. But once Christ returns, all second chances are over. That will be it. And so when that happens, several dominoes are going to fall. The first domino in Jesus' return will be this idea of resurrection. Jesus speaks of this in John 5 when he says, there will be some who will be resurrected to life and some who will be resurrected to judgment. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, I, I conduct a lot of funerals and a lot of gravesides, and this is often a passage I will read at a graveside because I will say, if this person in this casket knows Jesus and you know Jesus, then we're not really saying goodbye. We're saying, see you later. Because what 1 Thessalonians 4 says and 1 Corinthians 15 say is that there will come a time when Christ returns, the first thing that will happen is those who are dead will pop out of their graves. I tell people, and whenever I'm at a cemetery, I'll say one day this cemetery will be a disaster area because everybody will pop up out of the ground or out of the mausoleum. And everyone will be raised. For some, this will be the day we've been waiting for. For others, it will be an utter horror, a nightmare without end. Hebrews tells us man is destined to die once and after that comes judgment. And that leads to the second domino. Once there's resurrection, and again, we don't know exactly how this is going to happen, there's different thoughts on it, but then there will be recompense. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He says the same thing in the Gospel of Matthew. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And then in Matthew 25, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. That is a recompense of reward. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so once we are raised, everyone will be raised. Everyone will be given a new body. And then there will be recompense. Some will receive rewards, and that's all we will receive. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? When I'm raised and I'm in Christ Jesus, I get nothing but reward. I might get a little, might get a lot, but all I get is reward. But there will be others who receive rejection. This is a common idea in both the Old and New Testaments that one day a judgment awaits and the judge will be perfectly righteous. He will not be a judge who can be bribed. He will not be a judge who can be sweet-talked. Sweet he will see beyond every facade we've ever put up. And this sounds ironic on Halloween, but he will see behind the masks that we wear. We will be exposed. Our hearts will be laid bare. We will be seen for who we truly are and how we related to this judge. And so the question that I like to ask then is, <clears throat> will I be rewarded and rescued or rejected and condemned? And at this point, there's probably a lot of different kinds of people that could be really alarmed by this thought. I think two major groups would be those who are openly rejecting God and the gospel. I'm not sure that anyone here fits that category unless you showed up to the wrong place tonight. 
There are those who just shake their fist. They say, I don't wanna have anything to do with God. Or maybe they say, you know what? When I stand before God, I'm a pretty good, I can convince him. There might be those kinds of people. But secondly, there are the pretenders. People who claim to believe, but their lives say otherwise. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room the night that he was betrayed, he says, if you love me, you will do what I say. You will obey me. Your life will match your claims. And so there, there are these pretenders, those who pay lip service to God, but, but they're just kind of playing games. They're just kind of dinking around. They're just kind of saying, you know what, I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna make everybody think that I've got it all together. And all, none of us have it all together. We all agree on that. But they're putting on this facade, they're putting on this mask, and they're playing games. But when we stand before that judgment, we can't play games before a holy God who knows all and sees all. Maybe these are the kinds of people, have you ever heard somebody say recently, I'm living by my own personal truth. And so people just kind of make up what's right and wrong as they go along. Have you heard that? You know what, when the judge meets us, he's not going to say, well, what did you think was true? He is the God of all truth. And he will say, I know what's true. Did you conform to it? Did you conform to my perfect divine standard? Well, then comes the really scary part. I don't have a slide on this yet, but it's the word riddance, R-I-D-D-A-N-C-E, riddance. After rejection comes riddance. Have you ever asked this question? I hope you have, because it just means you have a pulse. Have you ever asked this question before? If God is so good, why doesn't he, can you finish that statement? Why doesn't he just get rid of evil? If he's so good, it's often asked by skeptics or people who are critical of the Christian faith. And so if an unbeliever were to ask me that, if God is so good, why won't he get rid of evil? My first question to that person would be, are you sure you're ready for that? I had a pastor friend that an unbeliever once said to him, well, if God's so good, why doesn't he get rid of evil? And the pastor said, all right, how about he start with you? Now that kind of changes the question, doesn't it? Because we don't see ourselves that way. But in order to get rid of evil, he's got to get rid of all sin, all unrighteousness. When I was about seven or eight years old, I'm, I'm playing in the flower bed in my house with a friend. I think we were making mud pies or something like that. And I don't know where this conversation came about, but out of nowhere, this friend says to me, hey, and I, and I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up going to church. But he goes, hey, did you know that Jesus is going to destroy the world one day? I was like, I hadn't heard that in Sunday school. I hadn't heard that in vacation Bible school. Have you all ever been to a VBS where the theme is God's gonna tear up the world and destroy it? You just tell them you don't have those themes. It doesn't tend to attract very many children. The parents write letters. So I was like, no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. And then just about the time my mom walks out of the house on the porch. And I said, mom, my mom was raised in the church. My mom, I think she lived with the apostles. I mean, she knew everything. I said, mom, uh, I don't even know who the joker's name was. I don't even know who it was now, but he said, I'll just call him Chucky. Chucky over here says that Jesus is gonna come back and destroy the world. And my mom looks at me and she says, well, that, that's true. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Haven't spoken to her since. But what happened there <laughs> was this, this set off something in my soul. It scared me. Because if my mom said it's true, then it's true. And I didn't want to be on the short end of the stick if that really was true. And, and it wasn't the whole story of everything, but it got me internally asking some questions through the years. 
Riddance must be the next thing that happens because before things can be made right, all the wrong things must go away. Sort of like an HGTV show. What do you do before you start remodeling? What's that day called? Demo day, right? <clears throat> demolition day. There is a demolition day coming. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, among many other verses, talks about this, but verse 15, it says about the one who comes on a white horse, and it's not Gandalf, it's Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Welcome to Vacation Bible School. Revelation 20, 10 through 15. And the devil who had deceived us all, look at this, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Are you ready for the devil to be extinguished and melted like the ring at Mordor? I am. Because he can still get to me. And look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, riddance will be the horror of horrors, but it is necessary for us to have the absence of horrors. Every single speck of everything that's wrong in this world must go into the fire, never to come out again. Think about it this way. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those are the answer to the penalty of sin. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, there's no lake of fire for us. We watch from a distance, if anything. But the riddance of sin is the answer to the universal presence of sin. What we need for things to be made right is we need for every part and every aspect of sin to be completely wiped away. Think about it this way. Let's say you live in the country, you live on a farm, and you're raising kids, and you're raising dogs and cats and chickens and that kind of thing, and a rabid dog wanders onto the property, and he's growling, and he's got that foamy mouth, and he's, he's shaking, and he's, he's doing all kinds of things like that. What do you do when the rabid dog comes onto your property? You don't play nice. You've got pets. You've got kids. You don't put up signs saying, please don't bite anyone. You don't say to the dog, hey, could we do some training? Could I just train you not to bite my kids? No, what do you do? You get your shotgun and you kill that rabid dog. Is that because something's wrong with you and you have an anger problem and that all you do is rage? No, that's because you love your kids, that's because you love your dogs, you love your chickens, you might even love your cats. You love your everyone, you love your spouse. You get a shotgun. In order for sin to be totally wiped out, God must get violent because of his great love. He must demolish every trace of sin. Why doesn't God get rid of evil? He will. And it will be unlike you and I could ever fathom or imagine. I'm not even sure if we who know Christ will be, will be able to watch the scene because it will be utterly horrifying because he hates sin. And you know why he hates sin? Because he loves us. 
and sin right now, there are some of you in this room, you know it, sin is having its way with you in your life. And you know what, I know you wish, and I know you, we need to do something about it, but you probably wish what I wish. Lord, can this just be gone? And his answer is yes, it will be. But we got more people to lead to Christ, but it will be. And for those of us who know Christ, here's the great thing about this horrifying prospect. Riddance is not the end for us, it's only the beginning. And in Revelation 19, when the righteous know that riddance is just around the corner, there is rejoicing. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Isaiah prophesies of this in Isaiah 25. Look what it says in verse eight. He will swallow up death forever. I've lost a son, a mom, and a dad in the last three years. I hate death. Death is demonic. It is awful. There is nothing good about death. People die beautifully sometimes. My mom died beautifully, but she still died. She was in a hospital, in a hospital gown and she's dead. What does this say? One day, God will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away the tears from our faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. And look at this, they say, and then we will say, this is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Or, as the message puts it, Ding dong, the witch is dead. Brush your teeth, get out of bed. You know the song, the Wizard of Oz? What do they do? What do they do when the witch dies? They sing. The Wizard of Oz is a biblical movie. They sing. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to say, ding dong, the devil is dead. La, 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 la. In 1 Corinthians 15, after it talks about the resurrection, it says this. It says, um, and there will come a day where we will say, Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When God rids the earth of sin and everything it causes, we will taunt death. We will look death in the face and we will say, come at me, bro. Oh, you can't, I just saw that. You can't come at me anymore because you're gone. Do you think I'm excited about this? You guys lost anyone you loved? You, have, you, have you watched their casket being lowered in the ground? That's of the devil. He started that. We are going to finish it behind Jesus Christ, our mighty warrior. I'm pretty excited about this. Because then what happens is this, renewal and rest. I would say that, I can, I can probably say this without knowing very many of you very well at all. I could say that here's what you want and here's what I want more than anything else in the world right now. Here's what we want. We want peace. I don't mean world peace, I don't mean freedom from wars and all that. I mean, we wanna go home at night and have nothing that burdens us, nothing that worries us, nothing that wakes, up, wakes us up in the middle of the night, nothing that stresses us out, nothing that causes us to nervously bite our fingernails or whatever we do when we get nervous. We want peace. And after God has rid the universe of sin and all its effects, then we rejoice because why? Because then we get renewal 
and rest. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. Notice the violent language. This is what I just talked about in verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. This is why we don't get real materialistic. If you ever start getting really materialistic, look at your stuff and say, this is all gonna burn someday. It's not gonna last. But according, verse 13, to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. Not a remodeled, not an updated, new in which, look at this, righteousness dwells. We live in a world right now where sin dwells. We have a world coming. A new heavens justice and a new earth. You know, right, that we're gonna live on a new earth after Christ returns. A physical place with plants and birds and rocks and golf courses and lakes. But no sin, no bullies, no Satan, no cemeteries, no hospitals. I don't even know if people need pastors then. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then Revelation 21, three and four. I had a, my wife had a friend years ago and she said, you know, Jenny, my wife Jenny's right down here. She said, Jenny, um, whenever I get really down and whenever I get really discouraged, I open up my Bible to Revelation 21 and I just read verses one through four and look what three and four say here. This is John looking into our future. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Say that with me, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What's another word for passed away? Died. Even death will die. How good is that? Sometimes when I'm uh, working with a family that's lost a loved one, they'll say, well, we know he's in a better place. And you know what I wanna say, but I don't because I'm just there to comfort him. I wanna say, no, he's not. A better place is Six Flags. He's not in a better place if he knows Jesus. He's in the best possible place. He's in a place that we can't even fathom how great it is. We don't need a better place when we die. We need the best possible place, the presence of God. Have you ever noticed when Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 14, and he says, I am going to prepare a place for you. Y'all know that passage? That where I am, you will be also. Notice how he says that, that where I am, you will be also. What's he talking about? We're gonna be together. And then he says, and when I come back, I will take you to myself. It's wedding type language. And that's, <laughs> thank you, that's the, that's the idea. Is Christ is coming to get us and he loves us so deeply, he uses a, an allegory of a wedding, of a groom coming to get his bride. And he says, we will always be together. And because I'm with you and because you're with me, no one can touch you, no one can harm you. We will be together. Riddance is demolition day. Renewal is a new heavens and a new earth. And, and one day we'll see that new heavens and new earth and God will open the door on this new home and we will gasp and we will say, this is what it was meant to be. This is what it was meant to be. No locks on the doors. No alarms at night we have to set. No more threats. No more turning on the news and finding out what one terrorist organization has done to someone else today. No turning on the news and hearing about a shooting on the south side or the north side or the east side or the west side. 
I mean, we'll turn on the news and they'll go, isn't it a happy day today? And I will go, yeah, what's the weather like? It's perfect. What's in sports? OU has never lost again. You know, for some of us, that will be great. Okay, for some of us, for some of other, you know, others, it will be other things. But I digress and I'm getting into now uh, my own personal things. So, but here's the cool thing. Now, we're in this place and we're back in a garden. If you look in Revelation 22, we're back in a garden and there's a river. What's it say in Genesis 2? There's a garden, there's a river. And looky there. We're back. Oh, we got the slide up there? There's a slide up there? There we go. We're back to the tree of life. No longer will there be anything accursed and night will be no more. Do you remember the first week when Andy was saying, hey, listen, this Bible is a, is a redemption story. It's not just a bunch of mixed up little lessons in life. It really is. If you start in Genesis and you read all the way through, you get to, Gen- to Revelation 22 and you say, oh, it's been solved. It's been solved. The problem's been solved. We're back and there's a tree of life and we know what sin was like and we're not going back there anymore. We know what good and evil are. The great problem has been solved. The Bible is a story of three trees, a tree of life, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a cross on which a man died, and because of that cross, we now are back in a garden and a river and a tree of life. The story has come full circle. It's not tuck everlasting where you live forever in the muck of death and sorrow and suffering. It's where you live forever in a state of peace, and joy and celebration. The main question I think the Bible wants us to ask here is who will be there? Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now as we read the rest of the New Testament, we know who that's going to be. It's all those who have trusted in Christ and in Christ alone to be their savior. And if that is true of you, your name is in that book of life. There's a scene that I didn't put in here, I don't think it was in these slides, but there's a scene in Revelation 19 or 20 where it says, the books were opened. And it's this scene of God like calling out your name. Hey, Lance, or what, no, I'm not gonna say me here, I'm gonna say someone else, hey, Bob. I'm looking down and looking at all this stuff you did, but something's missing here. You did some good things, you did some bad things, you did some really good things, you did some really bad things. But now I'm looking at this second book and I'm going down the list and I don't see your name in this one. And that's the scene that it presents. But if we know Christ, if he is our savior, we know this. Maybe God will say, do you think your name's in the book of life? Maybe he'll say, Lance, do you think your name's in the book of life? And I think I will say to him, ask the man seated at your right hand. He knows what I've done. He knows that I don't deserve this, but he knows that I trusted in him. Is your name in the book of life? And one more story and then I'll close, but one of the things that I like to ask myself, because I think we often ask, well, what's heaven gonna look like? What's it gonna... What's it gonna be like? <clears throat> Have you ever asked yourself this question? What will heaven feel like? 
Have you ever asked yourself that? Like, what will heaven feel like? And all I can think of when I think about that is my favorite movie, the greatest movie ever made, Hoosiers. Has everyone in here seen Hoosiers? Okay, if you haven't, it was made in 1987. The statute of limitations has run out, so I'm gonna tell you how it ends. But Hoosiers is it's based on a true story, a little bitty basketball team in Indiana. In Indiana, they used to not divide the high schools by classes in sports. It's just like, if you made it to the state finals, you made it to the state finals. If your high school had 60 people in it or if it had 6,000 people in it, Everyone competes on the same level. And back in the 50s, there was a team, and in the movie, it's a team called Hickory. There was a team that's in this really small school where the boys' basketball team makes up probably a quarter of the male population of the school. And they make it all the way to the state finals, and they beat the big school that has over 2,000 students. In the last scene of the movie, they come over, they're down by one, they call a timeout, and they go to the coach, and they've got this star player named Jimmy. And Jimmy can hit any shot. And, the co and, the, and they finally go to Jimmy, long story short, and Jimmy says, I can make it, get me the ball. And they get him the ball, and you see the clock ticking down in slow motion. Anybody with me, you seen Hoosiers? Remember what happens? Ends the same every time, I've watched it so many times. He takes the shot, look at that form, woo! Yeah, he takes the shot, it goes in, and then everything goes slow motion. And the camera pans around to the crowd. I could watch this scene every day for the rest of my life. It goes around to the crowd, and the crowd's like this. And their mouths are open and they can't believe it. They're like, we did it. That's what heaven feels like forever. It never ends. That's what it will feel like if our names are in the book of life. Well, so what? I've got this slide up here, Hebrews 9, 27, 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When I was in high school, I had a friend named Chris, and Chris lived in a nice house, and he lived in a wealthy family. I lived in a middle-class house, and I had a family that made me go to work and work in a grocery store, but Chris didn't have to have a job. He had all the money he needed, his parents always supplied him money, and he drove a gold Mazda RX-7. And I know that means nothing to most of you right now, but that was, and it was a five-speed, and he could lay a scratch in third gear every now and then in fourth gear. I mean, this was great. And we'd drive around listening to Rick Springfield. I'm an old guy, but we'd listen. I, we're hearing aids now because in Chris's car, <clears throat> he played his stereo, and it was like two million watts, and it just tore my ears up. But we would drive uptown in Edmond, up and down Broadway when you used to be able to do that, and we'd be listening to Rick Springfield, Jesse's Girl, and Human Touch, and all that stuff he used to sing, and he still does in the casinos now that he's like 80. But we're listening to that. And I remember talking to my stepdad one day, because I was working in a grocery store. I didn't drive a Mazda RX-7. I drove a Mazda pickup. It was not a chick magnet, because I wasn't either. But that's another story. But. And I said to my stepdad, I said, you know, I said, I'm not complaining, but, you know, Chris doesn't have to have a job, and his parents just keep funneling money into his bank account. He drives that sports car and all the girls like him. I don't even think he's even likable, but he's got that car. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't complaining, I was just making observations to my stepdad. And here's what my stepdad said, I will never forget it. He said, Lance, what does Chris have to look forward to? I never forgot that. 
So I wanna go back to this slide right here. And, and so let me ask you this, based on Hebrews 9, 28. And this is the way I would define what, a, if you wanna ask me what is a Christian? There's a lot of good answers to that, but let me look at Hebrews 9, 28 and tell you what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is eagerly waiting above all other things to see Jesus and to be with Jesus forever. And so your so what tonight is, what or who are you eagerly waiting for above all else? What is your supreme desire? As you're thinking about that, this last song we're gonna sing is one you've heard before. In fact, it's one we really don't start singing until about a month from now. And it's called Joy to the World. And as we sing this song, I want you to listen real closely to what it's saying because when you hear the words to Joy to the World, you know what I think it's about? I don't think it's about Bethlehem. I think the artist wrote it to say, as we celebrate Christmas, let's look forward to his second coming. So as we sing joy to the world, and as we sing these verses, I want you to catch what in the lyrics he's talking about, where what he seems to be doing is saying, we're rejoicing for what's coming if we're eagerly awaiting for him. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him. Heaven, heaven and nature sing. Right now, heaven and nature's groans, Romans 8. Let heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows cease, nor thorns infest the ground. What does that sound like? That sounds like everything's been solved. Are you with me? We serve such a great savior. He's coming back. Do you know him? Do you love him? He's coming for you because he loves you.